0: Hi everyone, Dan Sims here, CEO and founder of Revel Global, and welcome back to the Revel Alliance podcast, Bread and Circus Edition. What is Bread and Circus, you say? Co-founded with the wonderful Sharon Flynn from The Fermentary, who also co-presents and features in this podcast, it was set to be a celebratory deep dive into the world of fermentation in all its tasty probiotic, health-giving magnificence. So whether it was sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, kombucha, cheese, wine, beer, cider, sake, salumi, if it's fermented, you would have found it at and Circus. Sadly, we had to postpone the original February 2020 date to mid-June due to many of the producers and partners being affected by the horrific bushfires Australia faced at the start of the year. But then COVID-19 happened. And as a result, we had to make the tough decision to cancel it for this year, with the aim to rise like a phoenix in 2021. However, the silver lining is that we still got to meet, greet and hear from globally renowned fermentalist Sandal Katz, aka Sandal Crowd, and hence this podcast. Dubbed by the New York Times as one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene, he's an award-winning author, DIY food activist and self-described fermentation revivalist, Sandal Katz is the unofficial global godfather of the fermentation movement as part of a broader australian ferment yourself wild tour which was also organized by sharon in early 2020 sandor joined us for an in conversation event at the incredible Capitol theater in melbourne it was also hosted by food writer author food literacy advocate and culinary correspondent for abc news breakfast and abc radio alice Zawlaski, aka Alice in Frames. She is a superstar and no matter what she does she always brings bucket loads of incredible charm and passion. Yes we're massive fans. Despite the postponement of our main event this doesn't diminish our love and passion for this festival as for now more than ever it's vital we know where our food comes from and what goes into it. Where possible we encourage everyone to seek out and support small, independent producers as how you spend your food dollars right now really matters and has a direct and immediate impact on those who make it, their staff and their families. But for now, I'll hand you over to Alice, so please enjoy In Conversation with Sandal Katz and thank you all so much for being part of the Revel Alliance.
1: Now, the man that we are going to meet tonight has been in fermentation for quite a while as well, since the 80s, which in his bio he makes a point of, like before they were a thing, which I love, but we'll talk a little bit more about that when we meet Sandor and have a chat to him. But before we do, we're going to meet the woman who brought Sandor out and the woman who to me seems to be the godmother of fermentation in Australia. And I think it's because of the way that Sharon Flynn brings people in and she's always excited and interested to try something new. And she's been trying some new stuff on this tour with Sandor as well, which we'll have a little bit of a chat about too. But for those of you who haven't heard of Sharon, she's responsible for the fermentary. So if you, ha- if you haven't met Sharon, I'm sure that, ha- put up your hand if you've tasted some fermentary product. Yes, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Give that Give that a round of applause. To me, Sharon's Yes, please, thank you, yes, give the product a round of applause because I think uh, for a lot of people the fermentary products are the first, you know, thing that they experience and if they are, then they're a fantastic place to start. But I should probably say who I am too. So for those of you who don't know who I am, um, I've written books, I've hosted TV shows, I've been food editor of uh, the Weekly Review Um, and these days I spend most of my time making vegetables cool for kids through a program called Phenomenom with an M which makes, um, which gives teachers tools in the classroom, it's all free, so if you've got kids, if you're a teacher, uh, please tell everybody about it, it's funded by the growers of vegetables in Australia, will continue to be free forever and it's cool and it never says vegetables are good for you or healthy, they're just cool and interesting and get curious about them, which is why I suppose we're all here, because we're all curious about vegetables and ferments too, am I right? Yes, brilliant. Well, without any further ado, please allow me to welcome Sharon Flynn from the Fermentary. Yay, Sharon! <laughs> Grab a mic. Thank you. Now, Shaz, we've known each other for quite a while. The first time that the first time that I met Sharon, it was her first public demonstration mm. at the Lake House oh, Dalesford, okay. Regional Producers Day. Can I tell Can I tell everyone how you? You know what your general demeanour was? Sure. Yeah, you, similar to this? Not, not similar to this <laughs> at all. I remember how nervous you were, how um, excited you were as well. But the nerves are something that I've noticed has just gone away. You've That's been doing true. this a while.
2: You're right. Yep, I did have a shaky voice and watery eyes the whole time. I think. Yeah. Yes, and you're good. You're a good help. And now here you are. Here so
1: we right. are. Here we are. Full circle. Yeah. Um, what have you learned in all of those years? About talk, speaking in public. Yeah, why not? Let's start there. <laughs> um, every, uh, what
2: have I learned about that? that uh, it's actually really fun and people want to hear what, what you have to say if you say it with passion and a story, I think. And, and that's, you know, that's all I have really for this topic, passion, mm-hmm. and then definitely quite a long
1: story. And what a perfect segue yeah. to talk about the story of Fermentary. Q slide. Talk to us about this picture here.
2: Oh my goodness! Well, um, actually, last night we were at an event, and Luke Wearty from Birdie was there. Have you been to Birdie? He has this very, very aesthetic bar, and all the very beautiful equipment on it. In it, and they asked about the fermentary and I was like, "It's actually the polar opposite of um, aesthetic. It was. It was an abattoir that was abandoned in 19 or shut down in 1991, and the guy who owns it, let him and all his friends just store all their building equipment there inside and outside and um, I found it when I was looking for a mixer and he was like why don't you just move on in so so we did and I'd been um, before that though I'd been selling ferments out of the my boot of my car and in my own garage and you know slowly built up to this building that I thought how am I going to pay the rent yeah it was a big
1: deal a big deal it was. It was kind of a, a big, big deal. deal. But it was a it wasn't a big deal for you from where you'd started because you'd overcome some obstacles to get there, some hurdles. Uh oh,
2: depends what which I mean, a lot of hurdles really. I started the business uh to sort of help to heal my daughter's gut after a a long virus and um it took desperate times, I guess, and then somebody gave me a list of food and said if you focus on those, put the bacteria back in her gut after all the antibiotics. I think that's why there's some kids' pictures here. It's sort of um, yeah. put the bacteria there's back in with food and um, there's a mother and that will help. I was just making sure you guys were paying attention. You weren't. Pay attention, people. Yeah. That was a pun. And then that was one hurdle. I came home and I started fermenting. People wanted the products. I started teaching how to make it. They didn't want to do it. They wanted me to make it. So then I found out that uh, the beginnings of that were pretty interesting. Um, People wanted me to give them a medicine. They would say at the end of each lecture, they would be like, oh, how much should I take? I'd be like, don't take it, just eat it. And that's, I mean, people do want to be told to take a tablespoon of something or definitely have a shot of this and you'll be okay. And um, that was a hurdle, actually. Um, then I started selling it, uh, you know, I was getting about $800 a week from my car boot, feeling like I was rogue. I was, I was for me. Is that legal? I didn't care <laughs> back then because it wasn't really real for me. You know, it was just like, I didn't have an ABN. I wasn't invoicing anyone. It was all up here. Um, And then you met me, it would have been. So then people started saying, can I just buy it? And then I thought, I can't keep doing this. I better get an ABN and make it real. Quit my job and put it in a couple of stores. Allah found it in the store, put it in the lake house. You had some and then I did that thing. But the hurdles would also be that that growing bacteria on a substrate, a vegetable, is not legal um in australia you need to use a starter culture and so getting over being allowed for, so from going to from my home kitchen to then making it and deciding i was going to be a business to then finding out all the problems in our food system they were. it's been nothing but hurdles it's actually exhausting think about it <laughs> yeah
1: and it's something i'm going to put a pin in that conversation because i feel like um our guest of the evening yes. will have some words will have some things to say about that yes. but. How soon after you um, – did you have an ABN when you won the Delicious Produce yes, Award? Yes, oh, yes. you did. Okay. All right. So you were legit. Kill.
2: Yes, <laughs> I did. Um, but, you know, prior to that award we were using raw goat's milk and raw cow's milk for our milk kefir. We'd had it tested. The Wood End Council did that. I thought they were really, really generous um, but they were really just scared of what we were doing. Um, but it was kind anyway. And then soon after that, we had to go to pasteurised, which was fine, I mean. Mm. hmm.
1: And what about the future of the fermentary? Oh, my goodness.
2: What is the future? Just to keep going, what we're we're doing, building on what we're doing, talking about it, keep pushing back because um, it's not easy to to wild ferment here in Australia. Uh, We've had to get an alcohol licence for our water kefir, um, even though it's just sitting at 1.5, which is 1.15% is the national standard for what's a soda and what's not, but in Victoria it's 0.5. So we've had a lot of little things and I think um, I just recently hired someone and she was like, is this a f- um, political party or a food business? And I'm like it has to be both and we just have to keep. So it's meant that we are on a tight budget um, but we keep. I mean I think I still I love it more than I loved it in the first couple of years. So I think we'd love to have a little front end cellar door in the city So we can express ourselves a bit more. So that's probably coming up this year or next. We've got a lot of other workshops and people we keep bringing in to help share the the love this year. So uh, keep your eye out.
1: That's amazing. Well, I think we can all thank you for very generously sharing the love of Sandor Cats, bringing him out here. Um, So without any further ado, let's use that as our opportunity to bring up the man, the legend. So it's like a double clap. It's a double clap for both Sharon for bringing him out And Sandor, he'll go in the middle. Brilliant. Um, You all know who he is because you've given up your Friday night to be here. But um, for those of you who are a little bit newer to fermentation, uh, Sandor Katz wrote the book uh, quite literally on fermentation from, uh, you can pull up a pew if you'd like, but another um, round of applause for Sandor Katz. Why not? Sandor, um, I feel like, oh brilliant, yes, pull up a pew, uh, from actually, you know what, who here was here in, um, was with Sandor in 2013 when he last came out for his intensive three-day workshop, put up your hand if you were here for that. Okay, we got one, I expected there to be more, that's okay, that's cool, that's New cool. People. Just suspend your disbelief, we had like 20 people put up their hands, there we go, two, brilliant, two, what are, uh, three? Was that a shy hand? No? Okay. 20 people put up their hands because um, that was really all, the only people that were here. It was a very small contained group of people but they were so enthusiastic and I feel like in that room quite a few of those people went on to open businesses, you know, to um, continue to build a more comprehensive fermentation system, you know, commercially. Um, is that? Are you one of those people? Uh, shout out. What, what What is your ferment called? Lewis and Son, check it out. And um, what about the other hand up? Where were you? There you are. Um, Terrific. See, there you go. See, we've got two, two of the founding members, but I feel like from 2013 to now, um, there's a lot more kind of buzz, I suppose. Is that what you've found?
3: Well, I mean, <clears throat> sure. I mean, there's growing interest in fermentation. I, you know, something that's really amusing to me, is that, you know, since around 2012, um, you know, every year, uh, some sort of, you know, trend-watching list of, like, you know, new food trends. But, you know, fermentation keeps appearing on lists of new food trends. And, you know, while there's no question that, you know, there's growing awareness and interest in fermentation there's no way that you could call fermentation a new trend in food. I mean, you know, did did wine suddenly become of interest to people? Did beer, did bread, did cheese? So, I mean, fermentation has been so um, integral to food traditions all around the world, um, you know, throughout our lifetimes, throughout our grandparents' lifetimes, throughout their grandparents' lifetimes, um, that it's it's just absurd to call fermentation a new trend. I mean, you know, what's new is that people are, you know, interested and curious about the phenomenon of fermentation. And, you know, as people have become more and more distanced from how food is produced in every aspect, um, you know, that sort of coincided with the war on bacteria and people becoming afraid of, 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 of bacteria and a lot of people project this anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. So, um, you know, I think it's really exciting that you know so many people are getting interested in in this phenomenon. So many people are experimenting it with in their kitchens. Restaurant chefs who are playing around with fermentation in their kitchens. So many people seeking out high quality uh, products of fermentation. We're seeing a lot more experimentation in you know the beer industry and a lot more diversification of of fermented products in general fermented soft drinks like water kefir and jun and kombucha and kvass and um you know i mean that's that's incredibly exciting to me but you know it's hardly a new trend
1: and i like the way that you talk about that revolution being actually uh, to be more conservative rather than out there with fermentation
3: yeah sure i mean i don't think that there's anything particularly out there about fermentation i mean you know it's um I mean, it's just part part of, you know, whatever kind of tradition you're from, it's part of, you know, traditional food.
1: You mentioned fear um, and Sharon also mentioned that people didn't necessarily want to make their own ferments, they wanted to buy them. Where do you think that fear comes from for people at home to make their own ferments?
3: Well, okay. I mean, you know, for, for all of us who were raised during the 20th century, we never heard a good word about bacteria. All we ever heard was, you know, how dangerous bacteria are, how important it is to avoid bacteria. We had all these, you know, chemicals that we could use to you know kill bacteria and um, you know so I, I think it's very you know easy to understand how people in our time could you know project the sphere of bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. I mean in fact I mean you know Fermentation is a strategy for safety in food. You know, if you look at vegetable fermentation, there's really no case history anywhere in the world of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables. You know, and yet... You know, people almost can't help but project anxiety about bacteria onto the, you know, just the idea of cultivating bacteria in a jar. And, you know, I would say in the years that I've been doing this work, you know, the most frequent question that I have had is some variation of how can I be sure I have good bacteria developing in the jar and not some dangerous bacteria that might, you know, make me sick or kill somebody.
1: So you want people to move away from that kind of binary good bad bacteria paradigm.
3: Well, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, definitely we don't know enough about bacteria to sort of like label some of them as bad and some of them as good. And, you know, in fact, the reality of bacteria, the, you know, the most, um, uh, you know, kind of central fact of bacteria is that they're not, genetically fixed they're they're very genetically flexible and you know bacteria exist in these elaborate communities and it's you know sort of more about you know the dynamics of a, of, 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 of a group of bacteria than about a singular um, um, b- bacterium um, but you um, yeah, I mean, I think we need to move away from fear. I mean, we have all these products, you know. I mean, I've already noticed in, you know, in in um, uh, uh, the marketing of soaps here, just as in the marketing of soaps in the United States, there's all these soaps, you know, with with added chemicals that are, you know, antibacterial chemicals. And, um, you know, I think a moment of, you know, kind of fear like like this is sort of making more and more people sort of turn to these sort of chemicals um, um, in soap. but But they all promise to kill 99.9% of bacteria. Um, you know, the like the 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 catch with that is that, you know, really it's only like, you know, 0.1% of bacteria that have the potential potential to make us sick. And guess what protects us from the 0.1% of bacteria that can make us sick? It's the 99.9% of bacteria that we can coexist with perfectly well. And, you know, if we're continually, you know, diminishing biodiversity in the gut with antibiotic drugs, if we're continually diminishing biodiversity in our hands by washing with these antibacterial chemicals uh, and on our bodies, you know, we're, we're really ultimately making ourselves more vulnerable to bacteria illness rather than less vulnerable you know we we like exist in this bacterial force field that protects us and you know the more we erode and diminish that the more um you know vulnerable we become you know biodiversity is our best defense
1: and the more that we learn about the gut the more people start to turn back towards these traditional ferments and bacteria
3: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a huge industry of, you know, probiotic capsules. Um, uh, You know, mostly these are, you know, proprietary strains of bacteria that are owned by somebody and therefore somebody had an interest in sort of investing in some sort of a controlled clinical trial of them. So there's a really impressive, you know, body of research supporting their effectiveness at boosting immunity, improving digestion, um, you know, potentially other kinds of benefits. But, you know, the thing is that traditional fermented foods, what what, what traditional fermented foods um, have that's better than, um, you know, most of the probiotic capsules that are available are biodiversity. And so, um, you know, sauerkraut, you know, might not have the same, you know, sort of density of bacteria as are in a little capsule, but it has a lot more biodiversity. So you're not just getting, you know, 5 billion copies of a single cell or two or three, you know, you're getting this, you know, this food that's a, you know, broad community of organisms and it's really an embodiment of biodiversity. And this, same is true of of um, uh, uh, kefir or um, um, miso or you know virtually any kind of um, uh, traditional fermented food or beverage from anywhere.
2: So that's why we think it's so important to wild ferment actually to keep that diversity going. Otherwise, you're just it, You might as well take a probiotic capsule in a way because. Um, We don't really know what's in each batch or on each batch. Uh, We do know it has diversity and, you know, that's hard to find in our highly processed food.
3: Yeah, I mean, this, it's very interesting to me that, that the authorities in Australia are placing such an emphasis on, um, you know, encouraging producers to use starter cultures um, because it's, it's really unusual in the U.S. That, that, that people are using these. I mean, they are commercially available. Like, I've always seen them as a product that's just sort of playing to people's fears, You know, so people just think that, like, in order to do this effectively or safely, they need to add some little white powder to it. you know, what's what's most interesting to me is that, you know, in the 1940s, like almost 80 years ago, the U.S. sauerkraut industry considered introducing starter cultures when they were first developed. I mean, it's sort of, it's pretty well established that sauerkraut is a successional process, and the process is kicked off by a bacteria called Leuconostoc meserantoides, which is the lactic acid bacteria that's regarded as universally found on plants growing out of soil on planet earth. Um, and, and as that bacteria um, acidifies the environment, it gives rise to sort of other strains that, that become dominant. And in a mature sauerkraut after several weeks of fermentation, the dominant bacteria will be lactobacillus plantarum. So the starter cultures that are available are generally lactobacillus plantarum. When the sauerkraut industry in the US in the 1940s considered um, You know changing their method to introduce a starter culture the reason they decided not to is they convened taste panels to compare the sauerkraut made with lactobacillus plantarum starter with the traditional way and what they found is resoundingly people preferred the traditional sauerkraut because it has more flavor complexity because when you have a succession of different organisms um, um, uh, driving the fermentation you get uh, a, a greater variety of metabolic byproducts which to our taste buds read as complexity of flavor and if you jump right into the late stage bacteria you miss those earlier stages of development and you have you know less varied metabolic byproducts less complex flavor so they just rejected it and um, uh, you know I've, I've I've had a correspondence with some people in Quebec who produce a lactobacillus plantarum starter and you know their their reason is that it makes the process safer but you know according to the US Department of Agriculture they can't find a single case of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables so how do you make something that's hundred percent safe safer do you make it 110 percent safe <laughs> Um, you know, I I just don't I, I don't know I don't know how that works and 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 you know I mean in the U.S. the the benchmark for safety is pretty much the same as it is here. It's achieving a pH of lower than 4.6 because it's recognized that once you get below 4.6, even if there were some potentially pathogenic bacterial cells on the vegetables you started with, they would be destroyed by the acidity. And this is why acidification is such a, um, you know effective strategy for food safety is that none of the organisms that we worry about can survive in a sufficiently acidic environment. But, you know, in Australia, Somehow, um, you know, the authorities want to achieve this pH within a 24 hour period. In general, in sauerkraut production, it's always been understood that the slower the fermentation, the finer the flavor. So people, you know, in in the U.S., a lot of the businesses are, you know, putting them in cool rooms to make sure it's a slow fermentation. And, you know, it might take almost a week to achieve that pH. And and there's no particular risk to that. So, you know, you can certainly speed it up. The easiest way to speed it up is to do it in a warm environment. Um, But, you know, the, the, the warmer the environment you make it in, you know the 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 less um um you know complex and interesting the flavor is going to be
1: so let's take that pin out now sharon let's talk about the obstacles and hurdles that you found as someone trying to um cultivate ferments uh, the old school way in this country
2: well similar to just what Sandor had said we would When I first started and I decided everyone was asking me how much they should take and I hadn't been in Australia for 20 years and I realised, gosh, there isn't a lot of sour food in this diet, people aren't eating a lot of um, pickles or anything compared to where I'd been. Um, So I need to make sure I make a delicious product because there's no point saying something's good for you if people aren't going to really eat it because it's delicious, right? Where had you been? I had just prior to moving here I was in Brussels for three years and before that I was in the US for a number of years, three years, and then before that I'd been in Japan for about eight years Mm -hmm. and Denmark for a year and Malaysia for a couple of years.
1: Mm. And uh, um, um, sorry to – I'm digressing for a brief moment but I want to know had you – found yourself within the fermentation realm in any of those places in
2: each of them actually but i'd never gone oh i'm i'm a fermenter until i really until i bought wild fermentation um and i was like "Oh, oh i do all these things okay that's fermented i just thought i was a scratch cooker that was what I was called in the U.S. People would say, "It's my friend Sharon. She's a scratch cooker," and I was like, "Yeah, make everything from scratch." Like, it wasn't really the way I'd labeled myself before, but that was what they thought was interesting. I think it started because I wanted to make a American, like, I wanted to make a pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving, and um, I knocked. Out, I couldn't find a pumpkin that wasn't empty. You no. know, they, they're just for carving. And so I asked my friends at mum's at the school, like, where do you buy the pumpkin for the pumpkin pie? They're like, you just buy it in a can. And I was like, no, 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 I just want to make a pumpkin pie with pumpkin. And they're like, no, it's watery. And so that's when I became a scratch cooker. Yeah.
1: It, sounds, <laughs> it sounds funny but 80% of the pumpkin that's uh, grown in America goes into cans and the rest of it really are those jack-o'-lantern yeah. pumpkins. It's really different because in Australia we, we, we enjoy pumpkin a lot.
2: Yeah Yeah. so I was just like where do you buy pumpkin here Um, and there are are a number of things like that as a mum in America that I started going and that's when I got that label and now I'm digressing but um so.
1: So you came back here. I came back here. Yeah you started fermenting. Yeah so
2: I'd I'd been fermenting things all over the place particularly in Japan because I I at first you know every time you move you don't have any friends and then you have to make them, and sometimes it t- takes longer than others and sometimes you don't feel like it or whatever, right?
1: Sometimes you have to culture them, is that what you're yes. saying? Yes,
2: <laughs> and it's usually through food for me. Nice one, Alice. She's a pun, food pun uh, addict.
1: Pumpkin. Pumpkin. <laughs> I make pumpkin pie, thank you very much. Oh,
2: my God, oh, my Try God. Try the water kefir. Um, oh, yes, yeah, so everywhere I go I chose one. I, I had a thing, you know, depending on what sparked my interest. So particularly though in the US I got into cheese and bread and um, because there wasn't good bread at the store and I was making it, and then I was like, oh, who who makes the yeast or who puts that in a packet? And that was so interesting to think about, you know, you can imagine where everything else is grown, but I couldn't imagine that. And so I got into the sourdough scene. You know, I, was, I found Sandor's book actually, and then I was like, oh yeah, water, flour, what, you know, it was almost spiritual. It's like I thought I knew, I thought I was a scratch cooker. But I didn't know that and so what else don't you know? So it did take me down a, a rabbit hole of fermenting definitely um, more and I'd already had a lot of Japanese ferments in my life and um, then we moved to Brussels though and I didn't need to ferment anything because it was pretty um, available, a lot of beer and chocolate and kitchen was small. Um, So it was when I came back that I had that list and when I got given that list I was like, oh, my God, every hobby I've ever had is on here and it led me to what I said before. But I did go I've got to make it delicious Mm -hmm. because what A, what's the point and B, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. So, um, that yeah, but we've had obstacles because that is a foreign concept in food at the moment and it's just through I'd say the last 80 years or something. Mm -hmm. Food science hasn't caught up with new with um, recent science
1: and council regulations.
2: Yeah, too.
1: yeah. Um, Sandal, you mentioned before we got on stage. I'm taking a pin out. From, we were talking about the last time that you were here, and there was a dinner at Silo um, by Yoast. Who had a chance? You know, you, you're all foodie Melburnians. Who had a chance to eat at Silo and Brothel? Um, yes, how good, right? Please send a little prayer. Come on, Yoasty, open something new. Um, there's a very bad reason that brothel closed um, and it wasn't because of the name which let's face it was terrible but it was because of the council shaz do you want to fill sandor in now on the microphone oh i,
2: I was he, he was composting uh in the alleyway uh, just outside the restaurant and they uh, didn't i know remember
3: it. i mean when i went there like he was less interested in showing me the food in the kitchen and more interested in showing me his composting machine outside yeah
2: well, the compost got shut down and so he shut the restaurant down. Mm. Yeah.
1: The council saw that as a, a hazard and they, they shut the restaurant down.
2: And we actually moved from our fermentary in Fairfield to Dalesford to not be shut down. Yeah. Because we were wild fermenting then and they were like, no, 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 you have to. Which still, I'm not a food... I'm just... I'm a housewife cook, scratch cooker. So every step along the way with fermenting and having a food business has been shocking. And I think my decisions... Are based on the home, you know. It's like, oh, why can't we buy organic sugar that's grown in Australia? Oh, you know, and that makes the business a little bit different because it's I'm coming from a smaller idea, and then we have to make larger. But the um, um, we had to move because they said, you, you know, you need to get your your vegetable, your substrate, and make it a blank slate. So you bleach it or wash wash that vegetable, make it a blank slate and then you add the, the bacteria to it and then you know exactly what bacteria is going on it um, and that's what we want you to do and I was like well why wouldn't you pick on someone else like sprouts they seem kind of humid in their bags don't they you know mine's salted it's salted it's acidic it's not dangerous um, but it's like talking to Telstra at times you know oh, sorry Telstra
3: but I mean, the the one thing that I would say is that I, I mean, Australia is definitely not unique in this regard. I mean, you know, everywhere that I go, I, I actually just got a I just got a message from um, uh, a friend of mine who hosted me for a series of workshops in uh, uh, Colombia in um, in South America, um, and it was a copy of a court order saying that, like, you know. Um, uh, kombucha was could not be sold anymore in in um, uh, in Colombia they were just saying that you know this is not a valid food product uh, um, it cannot be sold here and um, you know I mean ev- everywhere in the world um, uh, you know certainly in the. US I mean the the regulatory authorities always you know sort of lag behind and um, the people who start fermenting businesses, the, you know, restaurants that are trying to ferment uh, uh, in their commercial kitchens, um, you know, they, they always have to end up being educators and, um, you know, sort of teaching their inspectors about, you know, the nature of these foods, the safety of these foods. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have really visited some of the most famous chefs in the world and been shocked to find that they're hiding some of their fermentation product, uh, projects from their inspectors when, you know, I think that they're in a better position than most commercial businesses to, um, you know, to, 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 to challenge these regulatory frameworks. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the U.S., basically, you know, re- restaurants run under this idea that it's intrinsically dangerous for any food um, to sit for more than four hours between, let's say, 40 degrees would be like uh, 3 degrees and 60 degrees. And that's basically every fermented product in the world. You know that would suggest that yogurt is unsafe, um, uh, sauerkraut is unsafe, all kinds of cheese are unsafe. Um, so you know sometimes our, uh, you know, in, you know, in our effort to protect people, you know, we just adopt these like sort of. Blanket ideas that are nonsensical, um, you know. I mean, the idea of a, a ban on raw milk cheeses, I would say, is 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 one of these. And in the U.S., we have this, you know, sort of arbitrary compromise that you know, a raw milk cheese that's aged for more than sixty days is allowed to be sold, but if it's aged for less than sixty days, it's it's not allowed to be sold. Um, you know, in 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 the EU, where there's you know a lot lot more varied traditions of, of raw milk cheeses you know they've opted for a more like you know let's say science-based bacterial testing approach so that it's not like just an arbitrary length of time and you know rather it's uh, you know testing the 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 each batch of cheese in, in a laboratory just to you know see what the bacterial levels are see if there's um uh, uh, any pathogenic bacteria in them um so i mean there are you know there are models of places that are doing these things in more um you know rational ways and places that are doing these things in less rational ways
1: so whose model do you hope that countries like australia adopt
3: Well, I mean, I don't think that there's like one. I mean, it's not. It's not as if the EU does not have problems with this. I mean, you know the, um, um, you know the there are all kinds of, you know, interesting, anomalous, um, traditional foods around Europe that the EU has banned. And, you know, I mean, nobody wants like their particular local food product to be, you know, sort of told by bureaucrats, you know, 500 miles away that, um, um, you know, their food is not suitable for consumption when they have a tradition of, 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 of eating it. So, I mean, within the EU, there's all kinds of, you know, struggles, uh, uh, uh around this. So I don't, think that there's a singular a singular model I mean I think I I think what we have to do is you know um, um, uh, you know let the food science experts um, uh, or you know, um, you know, use the information that's being generated in certain parts of the world. So, for instance, I've become friendly with a, a microbiologist um, um, at North Carolina State University who's employed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and you know, he's more or less the you know the United States's um, um, you know biggest technical expert in vegetable fermentation, and you know, he in fact has written several textbook chapters on the intrinsic safety of fermented and acidified vegetables. And, um, you know, whenever I meet people who, within the U.S., who are having problems with their regulators, I put them in touch with him. And then, you know, he's on his, you know, U.S. Department of Agricultural S- stationery, you know, sort of sending a letter and a copy of his textbook chapters and and some of his uh, uh, studies on this. And, you know, it's it's just he's speaking a language that the regulators are are, are understanding. And he has a position that the regulators have to uh, uh, respect in a way that they don't necessarily respect the expertise of the uh, producers them, them themselves. Um, but, you know, he's also been willing to, um, you know, I mean he has no particular authority outside of the United States but um, you know he's been willing to sort of use his expertise to try to give credibility to the you know to the safety of these foods for producers outside of the U.S. who are having similar kinds of struggles so you know I think I, I, I think it can be you know sort of useful to um, you know use uh, um, you know information and resources from outside of the country but I don't think that there's one particular you know sort of country or or area of the world that has like a model set of regulations that we all should be, should be following. I think, you know, everybody's, Kind of working this out as 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 we go, and um, you know it's it's a struggle. I have a friend who started um, the first raw milk uh, uh, cheese production in uh, Tennessee, and he, it's on the farm. The the cheese they're making is incredible, and it's gotten all these awards. But it took them years to get get licensed. I mean, at first the Tennessee Department of Health, you know, told them that th- they didn't think it was possible to safely produce raw milk cheese, and then you know they they basically. We went to the store and took pictures and they said okay you're allowing raw milk cheeses from California and from France that have been aged for more than 60 days this is what we want to do um, do you just think we're not smart enough in Tennessee to do this ourselves and that, you know that, that we need to rely on people from these other places and you know I mean after after several years of, of, of a process they prevailed and 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 they've been making wonderful cheeses. So, I mean, you know, there there are a lot of, like, you know, happy stories with happy endings, but I'm sure there are also many stories that, you know, have less happy endings.
2: Yeah, I think we have some pretty sad endings in the meat and salami um, small producer industry, definitely. But um, and we've talked about this on the whole tour where we say the best thing you can possibly do is to start one of these businesses and to exist here in Australia so that more voices are heard and we're all pushing back gently and saying this is what we know to be true, look into it, you know, back us up.
1: Mm. But the other thing that you can do and and I noticed this um, with you is Sandor you circumvent all of that by giving people at home the skills to be able to do it themselves so that then they don't have to be bound by regulations Um, and that's really, you know, you're going around the world open sourcing all of this information where, you know, you mentioned the word proprietary, um, the the notion of proprietary bacterium, you're you're actually saying, no, have it, make this yourself for free.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That that's that's what you know. That that's what my work is all about. Is you know, kind of empowering people with um, you know simple uh, uh, techniques to be able to uh, you know ferment with confidence at 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 home. And I mean, I've never been a commercial producer. I, you know, I mean, I I mean, I've met lots of commercial producers. I've collected stories from commercial producers. You know, sometimes I sometimes I have you know some little insight that I can share with a commercial producer. But you know, that that's not my forte at all. You know. You know, I'm just somebody who got obsessed with all things fermented and, um, you know, like learned how to make yogurt and learned how to make sauerkraut and learned how to make kimchi and learned how to play with the sourdough. Um, But... um, and 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 that's what I'm most interested in doing. But I mean, it, it certainly. Has, I, I, I mean, I recognize at this point, you know, not everybody wants to make their own sauerkraut and make their own yogurt and make their own bread. And you know, certainly nobody has the time to like make all of these things for for themselves. Um, and so it's important that there be. Um, um, high-quality producers. It's, it's a, and, and, you know, I mean, I don't think that we need, you know, um, um, international producers of cheese and of bread. I don't think we need to have national producers of cheese and of bread. Um, I think it's really great to have, you know, local and regional producers of these things. And, you know, the, they lend themselves really well to small-scale artisan uh, 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 production. And, I mean, just in general, I would like to see, like, a, a devolving of food production and, you know, a greater emphasis on local and regional food production and, you know, less reliance on, you know, um, um, national brands and, uh, and and globalized production. Um um, um, and, you know, I wish more people would be interested in, you know, doing some aspect of food production uh, um, um, themselves. And, you know, more and more I recognize, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not like I want to be, um, you know, making people feel like, you know, they have to do everything for, for, for themselves. But, you know, I want people to understand, like, that this isn't rocket science. And if they have any inclination at all towards doing these things themselves, like, at their base, they're easy, Like, I'm not saying that it's easy to make really great cheese. I'm saying that the basics of cheese making are really pretty simple and straightforward, and you could do it at home. Now, if you want to make great cheese, It's not going to be your first batch. It's not going to be your third batch. You know, it'll take a little bit. These are all things you have to learn experientially. Like, you know, no book can teach you to make great bread. You know, a book can provide you with some baseline information to get started, but you can only learn how to bake great bread by baking a lot of bread and like learning from your mistakes and, you know, refining your technique. Um, you know, you could potentially make great sauerkraut the first time you try to make it. I mean, you know, it is among the most straightforward of things, but you know, if you play around with that, with different vegetables, different seasonings, different levels of salinity, um, you know, that, too, will will teach you over time. And, and, you know, you'll learn a lot about, you know, what you like and what your family likes. And I think it's, you know, incredibly rewarding to make these things for for, for yourself. And and you're right. I mean, you know, you, you don't have regulators breathing down your neck when you're just doing this at home for, um, you know, yourself and your family and your friends.
1: You describe sauerkraut as the gateway drug to fermentation. Well
3: not not a gateway drug, a gateway,
1: you
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> Sauerkraut is not a drug. Well, it may, can make you feel really good.
2: People get addicted to making it though. I think there are, people can some kind of people start fermenting things and go down rabbit hole and they get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. It's not a drug though. It does make you feel happy.
1: <laughs> so if there are people in this room, well there are there are people in this room who've never fermented anything. Um, and if they're just starting out, do you have any words for them?
3: Yeah, jump into it. Try something. I mean, I, I think sauerkraut is the perfect thing to start with. I mean, uh, I mean, one reason is, is it's just simple. You, you chop vegetables, you salt them to taste, season them as you like them, squeeze them a little bit or pound them, get them juicy, stuff them into a jar and wait. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, there's nothing, there's really nothing to it. Um, but To the degree that, you know, people might be anxious, um, you know, about about bacteria, just the fact that there's no case history of illness or food poisoning from fermented vegetables I think makes it, you know, very, very inviting. You know, if you want to make salami, I support you. Like, I've made salami. It's fun. It's delicious. But, I mean, I can't tell you that there's never been a case of food poisoning or illness from salami because there has, you know, just the nature of the substrate is, you know, like a, a pot- has more potential hazard than working with raw vegetables. Um, so, um, so I just think it's the perfect uh, uh, way to start a fermentation practice. Like, if you want to make kombucha, that's great, but you kind of have to find a kombucha mother. If you want to make kefir, that's great, but you have to find kefir grains. You don't need anything with sa- for sauerkraut. Like, all of the bacteria that you need is on. Every cabbage, every carrot, every turnip, every onion, you know, all vegetables have these bacteria and it's just like as simple as it could be.
1: So should we be teaching sauerkraut classes at schools?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I've had some great experiences making sauerkraut with groups of kids. And, you know, the method that I use is very tactile. So, you know, I get everybody's hands in it. And like once once kids have had their hands in the food, you know, then they're really impatient. Like, is it ready? Can we eat it yet? Um, So so I mean, I think I think sauerkraut's a great thing to make with kids uh, uh, in school. And I've had some great experiences with that.
1: And um, so beyond just getting tactile with it, you know, it's the bacteria on the hands too that you're encouraging,
4: right?
3: Yeah, well, and actually, I mean, sorry, sorry, I I got to meet her like almost one-year-old uh, 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 earlier um, um, who loves to eat pickles. Um, but sometimes I meet people who say to me as if it's a, just a fact that like, oh, kids don't like sauerkraut or pickles, like the flavor's too, too sour for them. And I mean, maybe if a seven-year-old has never experienced these flavors before, you know, they might be put off by them and they might reject them. But, you know, if you introduce your, like, you know, infant uh, uh, to the flavors of lactic acid fermentation, it is likely that they're going to embrace these flavors and love them for their entire lives. And maybe especially if you're eating them before the kid is born and they're, you know, sort of experiencing them um, uh, uh, in in utero. I think a lot of our... you know, tastes are, are are actually formed before before we're even born.
1: I, I have to say, being Eastern European, the first thing that my dad did when I told my parents that I was pregnant was bring home sour pickles. So all the way through I was absolutely eating lots and lots of fermented foods. But she's asking for mm-hmm. thirds and fourths of sauerkraut, of Sharon's sauerkraut, I should say, and kimchi. And it truly is, you know, sometimes she'll drop it on the ground, but it's not because she doesn't want it. It's just because she wants to see what happens when she drops it <laughs> so we just pick it back up you know just a few extra fabulous microbes from the floor and then back it goes and she tastes it again you know so it really is it's a, it's a beautiful process um now speaking of beautiful processes Sandra even though you've been in this um I'm not going to call it a game let's say been in this realm for over 40 years now uh, or around 40 years let's say
3: you know it's 2020. Well okay so so here okay so you said the 80s like just, to, I mean, I've been eating these things my entire life, so that's well, well over forty years at this point. Um, but um, yes. um, you know, my first, I, the first time I made sauerkraut was in nineteen ninety three, which is the year that I moved from New York City to Tennessee, mm-hmm. and I already loved to eat sauerkraut. I already um, was associating it with good digestion and and um, and immune function, but. Um, you know, it was really getting involved in gardening after I moved to Tennessee in 1993 that gave me a practical reason to explore it. So, um, um, you know, the, the the first batch of sauerkraut I made was in 1993. The first workshop I taught was in 1998. Um, and the, the self-published zine that I put together I did in 2001, and then Wild Fermentation came out in 2003, just just to get the time frame.
1: Perfect. Good. And that's actually, I'm just going to put a little subtle plug, shameless plug for the zine, which is available as a hardcover little book that you can buy out there, which is pretty new. I've not seen that before. That's really cool. Um, But all of the books are available after the show uh, through Books for Cooks just outside, and you can get them signed by Sharon and Sandor. And back to the show. So um, the reason that I ask you about that kind of timeline is because it feels like, you know, being a a follower of your social media, it feels like you're still learning. You're still open. So what's the most exciting thing that you've learned most recently?
3: Well, you know… I feel like I live a charmed life because I get invited to, you know, go to different parts of the world and teach about fermentation, but I never go somewhere to teach about fermentation where I don't learn about fermentation. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't think, a single human being could ever have an encyclopedic knowledge of fermentation. I mean, fermentation is so vast. It is such a, you know, sort of um, um, key component of cultural expression and cultural experience everywhere that there's nearly infinite Variety in in in, in fermentation. Um, you know, on this trip, I, I actually just um, um, you know two days ago, I met this woman um, who is an anthropologist at the University of Melbourne, who comes from Nagaland, which is the very furthest east part of of, of India, and um, you know she brought some ferments from Nagaland um, um, to share with me. And, um, you know, that was just extraordinary and, um, and, 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 and so exciting. But, you know, I'm always learning about new kinds of fermented foods and beverages that I didn't know about, uh, uh, before one that I learned about a couple of years ago from a, uh, um, a Thai American student. Um, he showed up at my workshop with, a, like a Ziploc plastic bag full of, um, uh, um, uh, pork ribs covered with coated with like a a paste made from rice garlic and salt it's called nam. It turns out that it's just a, um, you know, it's sometimes done as a sausage. Um, it's sometimes done as um, um, uh, uh, ribs. Um, you know, since I've been writing about it and talking about it, you know, people have told me, oh, I, I, I didn't have any pork, so I did it with beef. You know, you the, the basic concept works works with with anything, and and all the fermentation concepts are are related. You know, cultures influence one another, and you know, all across Asia, you can find examples of people fermenting meat and fish in a rice medium and the significance of that is that um, you know the the fermentation byproducts that preserve lactic acid acetic acid and to some degree alcohol like the nutritional components that create them are carbohydrates like they require carbohydrates so um, I mean there's methods of fermenting you know fish Without any carbohydrates, and that's something like fish sauce. But fish sauce isn't exactly preserving fish. Fish sauce is decomposing fish. Um, So um, um, like this is related to sushi. Um, You know, um, um, would you go into a sushi uh, a place that didn't have a refrigerator? You know, the sushi that we know, the sushi that's gone global, is all about like fresh fish on a bed of rice. Well, before refrigeration, I mean, I mean, there was fresh fish sushi, but you know, it had to be very fresh. It had to be, you know, on the day it was caught, kind of fresh. But sushi also is something called nara sushi, which is, you know, basically fish preserved in a bed of rice. And the rice ferments and produces acids that preserve the fish. So, you know, when when I visited Japan, I got to try a few different variations of narazushi, which were all really delicious and interesting and distinctive. On the same trip, I spent a couple of weeks traveling in China. And through my my friend's mother, who lives in Hong Kong, we uh, visited this, like, Pretty remote subsistence village in in uh, uh, Guizhou. It's a ethnic minority called Dong people. They they you know many of them didn't even speak Chinese. They have a different language that they're speaking. Um, but you know every everyone in that village. We were there for about four days, and everybody served us um, um, uh, uh, fish, carp. Uh, preserved in rice, mixed with chili peppers and other kinds of seasonings, uh, Sichuan peppercorns, um, and no one cooked it. I mean, it was just raw fish. Maybe they'd heat it up a little bit so it would be warm, um, but it was you know inc- incredibly delicious. So there's all of these traditions around the world, um, you know. And then my, my my Thai American student just introduced me to another variant that I've that I've been you know, enjoying uh, a lot. But, you know, all of which is to say I'm always learning and there's, um, you know, lots of different ways to ferment everything. Once I was at a conference and um, uh, one of the other speakers, uh, you know, I was speaking about fermenting vegetables and one of the other speakers was speaking about sourdough and she provided everybody with with a, a recipe and she said, you have to do it exactly like this or it won't work. And it just seemed to me like the most absurd thing you could possibly say. I mean, you know, you travel around the world, you try different styles of bread. You know, clearly there's different ways to make bread. There's not one way to do it. There's not one way to make sauerkraut. There's not one way to make kimchi. There's not one way to make bread. There's not one way to, you know, preserve fish and rice. And, um, you know, it's just been incredibly, you know, interesting and stimulating for me to get to, um, you know, sort of see so many different traditions of fermentation and, um, learn about them and fit them into a bigger picture, uh, uh, framework. So, so, I mean, I love traveling and I love getting to taste different things and learn from people.
1: And that, um, it's just so palpable that passion and that openness to learning and it's something that I think that we've all um, been able to bask in tonight and how are we going for time I feel like hopefully my body clock has saved some time for questions yes okay so we've got 10 minutes for questions so um, I'm going to open the floor because I just feel like you've given up your Friday night you've got something to ask Sandor so if you do I'm gonna Oprah on down with the microphone. Have we got a microphone? Oh, we've got a microphone, I don't have to Oprah. You get a mic, and you get a mic. So who would like the microphone first?
3: Oh, pe- people are always shy about the first question.
1: No, don't project, no, no. oh yes, wonderful. The microphone, when you have the microphone, that's kind of like, um, it's a conch of trust. I trust that the question that you ask is relevant to the entire room.
3: <laughs> all right, we'll
0: give it a go. The floor That's is yours. not much pressure. Um, this is a very, uh, I guess, open starting question. In all of the years of tasting different ferments and travelling around the world, is there maybe one, two or three that just totally stand out as just totally mind-blowing um, that you could share with us?
3: I'm terrible with, like, favourites or, 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 or best things. I mean, you know, really, like, for me... I mean, it's just the incredible diversity that's the greatest that's the greatest pleasure. I mean, I certainly keep coming back to some of my classic favorites, like the um you know like 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 the um you know sour pickles of of my youth um um that i that I still incredibly love but no i i mean I'm very devoted to fermented vegetables, and I love tasting different variants. This woman from Nagaland had dried fermented bamboo shoots that were really, really lovely. Um, um, And, you know, there's certain traditions, uh, uh, actually, throughout the Himalayas, when they ferment vegetables, they dry them adds this whole other texture and dimension in certain traditions that I've seen in Japan and in China. They'll dry vegetables in the sun first and then ferment them to create different kinds of textures. Um, uh, you know, one of the most delicious fermented vegetables that I ever had um, uh, was just because it was a really, you know, it's a vegetable that in my mind, is really rare. It's something that that only grows wild um, that we have in the U.S. called ramps. And I have a place where where I know to harvest them, and every year I'll harvest like a little handful and make an omelet or something out of them. But this friend of mine showed up with buckets full of ramps, and I got to make a batch of sauerkraut that was just ramps and salt. And it was like so so good. It had this like kind of almost caramelized oniony flavor. Um, um, it was lovely. But I mean, I can't really say that. Like, there's a couple of things that stand out. I mean, the narazushi was 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 amazing. Um, um, you know, get, getting to um, uh, uh, spend a day at Tarada Honke uh, uh, a Brewery, which is doing things like a, a Japanese sake brewery um, um, that, that's doing things entirely sort of by hand, natural, wild fermentation, old ways. Like I loved, loved, loved their sake. Um, I love the craft brewing movement, and and especially the um, uh, the revival of sour beers. Um, You know, just for some perspective on sour beers, for those of you who might be like put off by the flavor of sour beer, you know, until the 20th century, there was no such thing as pure yeast, like all beer was sour beer. Um, And, um, you know, our our, our taste buds can get sort of so narrowed so, uh, so quickly. I mean, I love some of those Central European breads. Um, I, I, I don't know, you know, like I love food. I love diversity of food, and you know the most exciting thing to me about fermentation is just how how broad and and diverse it is. Beautiful.
1: A, a question over here. Excuse me. me.
5: Um, we've got Stephanie Alexander working in Australia. Sorry. We have Stephanie Alexander working in Australia with the kitchen garden program, um, bringing school. School kitchen gardens where kids actually grow the food and then they cook the food and I was thinking about Jamie Oliver with his school lunches programs. Is it potentially something that you'd be interested in developing perhaps an international system or educational program whereby fermentation could be placed wholly into curriculums as part of sort of standard curriculum, you know? I'm sure you could work out a way to make it so that um, it fits into everybody's curriculum around the world when you talk about gut health, mental health and, um, you know, food safety of the economy going forward. Would that be something that you would potentially be interested in looking into?
3: Sure. Sure. You know, I mean, I don't really see myself as like a sort of, um, um, you know, an an organizer who could pull all of that together. But um, um, I mean, it seems like it seems like it would be a great thing. And I think that, you know, especially in any kind of a school that has a garden, it's a really it's a it's an important connection between the garden and the kitchen. You know, we can't, we it's not only about cooking vegetables, it's about, you know, preserving the abundance of vegetables. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd be very open to participating in something like that. Yeah.
2: Alice, you'd be good at that, though you're sort of already doing that
1: <laughs> my head hurts from from nodding so hard but I think I'm um, already you know um, being a former teacher I can already see as you say so many different curriculum links but the great thing for, for the teachers in the room or those who have access to a teachers ear the great thing about the Australian curriculum is that it's kind of like a bookshelf and the teacher chooses the books that go on it so if they happen to be fans of fermentation then they can find opportunities themselves to link but it would be fantastic to create something a little bit more um, official. So maybe Phenomenon 2.0 can be mm. Fermentation-omenon.
2: Yeah, and well, we go to schools. We go to schools. that we've. There's a guy last night from Truac Primary. He's like, let's do something. I've done quite a lot of different uh, lessons with schools and talked to a Stephanie Alexander program too last year. So it's going to happen. Yeah,
1: It'll happen, but thank you. Yeah, really good point. Uh, next one. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, for those of us playing at home with our experiments um, and doing,
2: you know, things with grains and nuts and crossing over our ferments. What
1: do you recommend if we're sometimes creating something and it's a concoction that we're not certain if it's going to make us collapse and froth and, you know, pass out? What do you go by with your palate when you're doing experiments and you go, look, it might
2: be slightly unpleasant but it's not going to be bad for you. It's just getting used to it because sometimes the flavors become quite diverse, what signs where it's kind of on the line do you go, no, it's still okay or it's not?
3: Well, I mean, I mean, generally I would say if it tastes good, it's good. I mean, if it doesn't taste good, I'm not personally that that interested in eating it. Like I don't really find many, many foods like – I mean, I I can't think of anything where I would say, like, well, it doesn't really smell good or taste good, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Um, You know, generally, it tastes good to me. Now, I mean, you know, for some people, it might smell strong. I mean, you know, what what I'm always trying to, like, um, 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 help people understand is all of these things exist along a spectrum. And, um, uh, you know, so some particularly people who, you know, just don't have much experience, let's say, with sour vegetables, you know, you can make them less sour, just ferment them for less time, less acids accumulate. Now, you know, once you get into the fermentation of like, you know, higher protein things like nuts and seeds, um, you know, there's, there's, there's greater potential for putrefaction. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these things, you know, either they they need a shorter fermentation or or they need, you know, some sort of a starter culture. So you're sort of guiding the fermentation and have less vulnerability to to starter cultures. Like, okay, I mean milk is a really good analogy to this because um, you know, I, my, my mother, I re, I remember my mother smelling the milk carton and, and sometimes saying, Oh no, that milk is sour. We have to pour it out. But you know, the milk was pasteurized, you know, pasteurized milk does not typically sour when it goes off. It's like, you know, if it was raw milk you know, it's, it's dominated by lactic acid bacteria, it will sour in a reliable way. But with pasteurized milk, it's a high-protein microbial blank slate, and it's, you know, pretty random what's going to develop, and generally the bacteria that develop are putrefying bacteria. So, you know, when we're taking our pasteurized milk that's been in the refrigerator for a while and starts to smell off, It's not sour. Sour smells good. So, you know, with with nuts and seeds, um, you know, sometimes they can start to smell putrid. I think for me a lot depends on am I cooking them afterwards or am I trying to make a raw preparation? If I'm trying to make a raw preparation, it's really important that it smell good. If I'm going to cook it, then I'm a little bit more open to, you know, a little bit of putrefaction happening. Um, um, and, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes something will start to smell bad, but it'll still taste good after you cook it. So, I mean, it it depends. I mean, it's hard to make bl- blanket statements. But, I, I mean, in general, I think that, you know, the food should smell good and, and taste good.
1: Have you got a general go-to kind of dish that you make with something that smells a bit funky. Mm. Are you shelling the nuts? a la minute you're doing all the things yeah right might be a conversation with sandor at the book signing later <laughs> back to the show i think we've got time for maybe two questions one and a half let's see uh, the next one is
4: Down over here, here. Uh, you've all spoken about the politics of fermenting and um, sharon talked about your part politician i think you mentioned um i know of a guy called um uh, dino Callahan. people might know him he ferments Um, uh, He's at the abattoir next to us, yeah. (laughs) And wears a kilt. He had an issue, I remember, years ago um, listening to how American kombucha makers were having issues with fermentation and liquor licensing and it nearly killed um, small brewers. And I didn't believe it had happened here, but then Dino experienced it and you've sort of talked about it as well. A conspiracy theorist would probably say, hmm, it's the big processes, it's the businesses that put uh, best buy dates on food um, that want us to waste food and um, throw it away and then buy some more when we're not using it. Um, is that just a conspiracy theorist or do you think it's lack of education in our, in our um, uh, universities or is it a mixture of all of that?
3: Well, I mean, I think in the U.S., most of the regulatory issues around kombucha have had to do with alcohol levels. And so, you know, Sharon's been saying that, you know, in most of Australia, the acceptable level of alcohol, um, things are categorized as non-alcoholic if they're below 1.15% alcohol. In the U.S., it's under 0.5% alcohol.
2: And Victoria.
3: So the, the threshold is 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 much lower. And you know the problems with kombucha have not been safety, but they've rather been, you know, kombucha that was above that zero point five percent alcohol threshold. Um, do I think it's a conspiracy? I mean, actually, I think that that th- threshold more has to do with like puritanical values and you know, sort of the prohibition me- mentality than it than it than it's um, um, you know any, any kind of specific conspiracy um, about about small producers and taxes
2: too. Yeah.
1: And but then the, the big producers are the ones that are buying up these small batch fermentation brands too.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, so, so I mean, what a, lot, a lot of the big producers basically have abandoned the traditional method for producing kombucha. So rather than, like, you know, having your kombucha mother floating on sweet tea and, and you know, the process which, you know, really defines kombucha, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, having a microbiologist, like, take apart kombucha and, you know, isolate some of the organisms For production but remove yeast and maybe some other ones that are inconvenient but honestly this isn't even unique to kombucha you know there's very little commercial yogurt in the world that's based on sort of the complexity of traditional yogurt cultures and you know it was more than more than a hundred years ago that microbiologists decided to sort of like take apart yogurt and isolate you know which organisms were functionally necessary to make yogurt and almost all commercial yogurt since that time has has, you know, been made with these, you know, I'll call them dumbed down uh, um, cultures that, um, you know, don't perpetuate very well over long periods of time. So, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that for commercial, I mean, Wine. I mean, you know, we we talk about natural wine as if it's some like new thing, you know. Until the 20th century, all wine was natural wine, and and then in the 20th century, we started having you know pure strain yeasts, and you know that 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 makes for greater um, um, you know consistency for large scale production. Um, but it also makes for less biodiversity, makes less flavor complexity. Um, but uh, so I think in, you know, you'll find this in every realm of, 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 of fermentation, it's not it's not just kombucha.
2: Another fun example related to the sushi is, you know, that the result of the, the rice on the fish made the rice sour, now sushi is, rice is made with vinegar. That's imitating the original flavor. And it, it, I guess it's a process as well, initially, of making things more accessible, more logistically viable. Um, but now we've gone, all right, we've got refrigeration and we've experienced the processing of food to make them more accessible. Um, the, the tendency now is for us all to go, we need to sort of bring it back so we get biodiversity and good flavour. Because, you know, when you're stuck with the same kind of bacteria being dumped into yoghurt, it's pretty hard to make yoghurt taste different from each other, you know, one from the other. You can do different amounts of creams and things like that, but you're using the same cultures. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between um, some sake and Honke sake. He's saying the same thing. If we're all bound by the same regulations, how am I supposed to make a unique product with tewa? And uh, so it's up to the small producers, I guess, to begin to go, oh, I'm going to make something um pure and and different that will taste different to the others because it has my cultures or natural cultures, yeah.
1: Have we got time for one more question? Yeah, we've got a
0: couple.
2: Okay. Two more.
1: Oh, yes, two more. Yellow sh- T-shirt. He planned to ask a question. Cheers. Yellow T-shirt stands out.
0: Um, so there's a lot of discussion about um, uh, probiotic potential of fermented foods. Um, I've read a few things, I'm no expert by any means, that um, – a lot of that uh, good bacteria doesn't actually make its way to your gut, uh, and and that probiotic um, foods and, and drinks are, are far better for you. Um, Sandor, what are your what are your comments on that? And um, are we getting like if we if we have a diet full of um, um, fermented foods and drinks, um, is is all that probiotic good stuff getting into us? Uh, is it actually f- helping us out a lot, or is it the 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 um, prebiotic is. Oh, is, we should. We, should we fo- be focusing more on prebiotic yeah, yeah. stuff?
3: Well, I mean, both. I mean, you could have all the probiotics in the world, and if you're not eating, you know, fiber foods that, um, y- you know, take the entire length of your digestion to break down, you won't be nourishing their their, you know, continued, um, um, you know, thriving. So, so I mean, I think that probiotics really, really, you know, can have an impact on people, but you know their impact will be extremely limited if we're not eating the kinds of nutrients that can really sustain them. So, I mean, de- definitely like we need to be eating more prebiotics, but I, I don't see it at all as an either or situation. And so, you know, something like fermented vegetables, it's just intrinsically prebiotics and probiotics together because, you know, it's, it's, it's vegetables and the bacteria that grow on them. Um, and, you know, vegetables are full of, you know, fibers, the, 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 the kinds of nutrients that are considered to be um, 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 prebiotic so I don't consider it either or now um, you know some people are concerned that like you know bacteria won't survive the acidity of the stomach it's pretty well established that you know food itself will protect you know some proportion of them and you know Basically, it's very well established that, you know, any, um, you know, specific bacteria that you put into your mouth will eventually be found in your feces. So, you know, some proportion of the bacteria make it through the acidity of the the stomach. Um, The earliest articulations of probiotics... um, from this early microbiologist, Eli Metchnikoff, Um, you know, his idea was, you know, you eat the the yogurt and you know, it displaces all of these, you know, putrefying bacteria in your intestines and you know, it's now understood that it's not quite as simple as that. Um, 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 You know, there's a complex interaction. You know, science is just beginning to develop tools to understand the full nature of this interaction that happens between the bacteria we ingest and the bacteria that are already uh, um, um, in residence in our intestines. One aspect of it is metabolic, but an important aspect of it is genetic. And like the most important fact about bacteria is that they're not genetically fixed and they're constantly exchanging genetic material taking in genetic material from the environment and when we eat bacteria rich foods we're enriching the, back to the the genetic environment in our intestines and giving all of the bacteria that are in residence there more genetic tools to work with so you know we're we're definitely giving them greater you know powers of adaptability and and resilience but we can't really sustain that um you know without Prebiotic nutrients, you know, fibers, oligosaccharides, and and other kinds of like hard to digest nutrients, um, and um, you know the general like all the probiotic supplements that um, 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 are marketed on on uh, with with prebiotics um, um, are full of inulin. Which is this um, uh, compound that the vegetable that it's most uh, uh, concentrated in is Jerusalem artichokes, this North American um, um, native. A lot of people say they don't like to eat Jerusalem artichokes because they give them gas. Well, guess what? Um, you know, bacteria that feed the or um, um, foods that nutrients that feed the bacteria of the large intestine will give us gas. And, you know, we kind of have to embrace that as part of healthy functioning and, you know, not as, you know, some kind of a pathogenic um, or pathological symptom. Um, so anyway.
1: I love, I love that there were a few um, partners in the room that looked at each other like, see. <laughs> <laughs> now we've got time for one more question, if there is one more. Oh, brilliant. Okay, there's, there's one down here. I feel like there's the, there's more cuteness factor down here for this for the last question though Dan seems. Okay, well maybe we'll do this can one. Can we up do there? one and a half? Okay, okay, you've you've already done that. Go back up the stairs, you can do one. Yeah, I'm just making him have a little exercise. It's important. It works in wine.
0: Hey Sandor, how are you going? I just as a you know, fermenter and I'm just interested in what you had to eat today from <laughs> breakfast through to dinner. I'm I'm seriously interested. I'm a chef. Yeah. My name's Toby, and I'm actually interested.
3: Well, okay. Um, so, uh, so I so I, I moved from one place that I was staying to another place that I was staying. So I had a, a like a pretty abbreviated breakfast. I had I had some coffee and some sauerkraut on a piece of bread. Um, um, there was no butter. I would have liked it better if there was like butter and sauerkraut on the piece of bread, but it was just a piece of bread with sauerkraut, which was really delicious. Some of Sharon's, uh, uh sauerkraut. And, um, and then I went for a long walk. I went to the, I went to the, um, uh, beautiful botanical gardens here and walked around and then I just got really, really hungry and, um, one thing I love about being in a big city like this, a big international city like this is, you know, I'm staying actually very close to Chinatown. And I just love, 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 love Chinese food. And um, we had uh, we had some um, um, uh, dumplings. We had like a mixed vegetable stir fry. Um, oh, oh, my God, the most exciting thing that we had, we had jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> so so I had I had Chinese food for lunch, yeah. So I mean I, I, I really don't follow any particular um um you know dietary ideology. I love food. I love vegetables, but I definitely don't exclusively eat vegetables. I, I eat some meat. I eat some fish. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'll really eat whatever whatever people put in front of me. There's very few things that I, that I, that I don't like. Um, if I go for a few days without access to fermented vegetables, uh, before I came to Australia, I spent two and a half weeks um, traveling around the South Island of New Zealand and, you know, going to beautiful places, but beautiful remote places. And, you know, sometimes there weren't many food choices in some of the... Um, um, uh, uh, places where we were. And, um, when I don't have fermented vegetables for a few days, I definitely notice my digestion getting really sluggish. Um, and I feel like eating fermented vegetables, like, you know, really, really like keep my, keep, keep my digestive, uh, 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 processes, um, um, you know, moving.
4: Nice.
1: Thank you. Great question. And our final question, bring it home, young lady.
4: Following on from the jellyfish, We've been harvesting some seaweed and we're wondering if I'm wondering if you can ferment seaweed and if you have and if you've tried it before, what's it like?
3: Well, I love eating seaweed and I have tried fermenting seaweed. Uh, Mostly I have fermented seaweed along with land vegetables. So, um, you know, in sauerkraut, you know, like like kelp. You, you know, if, 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 if the form you have it in is dried, I would soak it in water first and get it, get a little bit juicy. I'd soak in just a little bit of water and then I'd use that water in with the, with the cabbage and other vegetables. But I just like to cut it up in, 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 um, you know, really thin slices and mix it up with salted cabbage or grated carrots or whatever other kinds of vegetables I'm, I'm using. And, um, I think it's a great component in that. Um, You know, my experience is is if you do just seaweed, um, you know, the whole thing gets a little slimy, which, you know, some people might love, some people might be put off by it. But if you use a relatively small proportion of it in with vegetables, that doesn't really occur at all.
2: I've done a fermented, uh, like a vegan fish sauce with dried mushrooms, fermented black beans and a lot of seaweed. And it tastes like fish sauce. But not. That's a good one.
1: Is that in your book, Sharon?
2: That'll be the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Which will be out when? Oh, my gosh. Um, April next year. Look April out for 21. That. But, Sandra, you have another one.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm I'm actually just finishing up a book project and starting on another one, but um um, the 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 book project I'm wrapping up right now is really very. It's I mean it's on the theme of fermentation, but it's it's very different. It's really a it's it's really a book of like art and ideas, and the the title the working title is Fermentation as Metaphor. Um, And I've been I I've been generating and collecting microscopy images, microscopy images of fermentation organisms incredibly beautiful especially the like the fungal cultures the koji the tempeh are are just Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. So I've been taking a lot of photographs at home with a microscope and teaming up with a university um, in a town near me. And so this book will be sort of a bunch of microscopy images um, um, running alongside uh, uh, an essay I've been working on that's called "Fermentation as Metaphor." And in our language, we use the word fermentation to describe lots of things beyond the um, um, you know transformation of 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 of, of foods through the action of microorganisms. You know, we talk about cultural fermentation, artistic fermentation, musical fermentation, religious ferment, spiritual ferment, political ferment. And, you know, there's really, you know, ferment is, is about agitation and bubbliness. And, you know, any realm of our lives where, you know, where, where we experience agitation and bubbliness or get caught up in a sort of a social movement of agitation and bubbliness can be fermentation. So this is a, an essay kind of talking about this um and then um i'm just beginning work on a book about my travels and 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 just you know i'm my the my working title in my head is global fermentation inspiration it'll be like recipes and photographs and stories um uh but you know both from places i've visited and from people i've met from places i've never visited
1: Well, we look forward to all of those books coming out. That coffee table book with microscopy images sounds absolutely fantastic. And I feel like it's the perfect place to finish because for every person in this room, something surely is percolating, is bubbling away, whether it be going through the gateway to something as simple as sauerkraut or pushing beyond the boundaries and trying your very own vegan fish sauce with seaweed um, or, or whether it be just going out there and becoming an advocate of fermentation on a broad scale um, in whatever realm you're in, whatever sphere of influence you're in, just keep on fermenting I suppose. And and we're so grateful, Sandor, that you keep on doing what you do because you're an absolute inspiration, as are you, Sharon. And I think that you both deserve an enormous round of applause.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for the Rebel Alliance podcast. And we look forward to seeing you in the next one. If you're keen for more, please do consider subscribing as we're all about the wonderful people in our food, drink and event orbit. So until next time, cheers.